Revelation chapter 10 this morning. Revelation chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1033. We're going to consider the entire chapter this morning. But before we begin, I'll offer a word of prayer. Let's bow together. Our Lord, we do give you our thanks for another wonderful morning in which to gather and to worship you. Lord, thank you for all the dear people who have gathered today to sing and to hear your word and to pray and fellowship. Lord, we also think of those who are away right now because of illness or perhaps because of weather. Would you minister to them as well? Might this service be a blessing to them, if even from a distance. As we consider this new chapter in our study of Revelation today, Lord, might you open our eyes to the wonders that it contains. Would you help us to shape our lives by its truths? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So an online discussion board recently posed the question, What is the most powerful force in the universe? What is the most powerful force in the universe? Many replies were offered. Now, those with a scientific bent said, the most powerful force in the universe is the strong nuclear force. This is the force which binds quarks together to form protons and neutrons, and then it binds those protons and neutrons together to form the nucleus of atoms. Now, according to the website Hyperphysics, the strong nuclear force is 6,000 trillion, trillion, trillion times more powerful than the force of gravity. So I think that's a pretty good candidate. But others gave different answers. Some said that dark energy is the world's most powerful force. Others said it was entropy. There are some who have a more philosophical bent, and they offered very different answers. Some said love is the most powerful force in the universe. Others said it's faith, or hope, or intelligence, or consciousness. Of course, every group also has a few wise guys in it, and so one guy said Murphy's Law is the most powerful force in the universe. Then there was my personal favorite. Someone said my mom's backhand is (laughs) the most powerful force in the universe. Now, I'd like to submit another answer to you this morning. I believe the most powerful force in the universe is the Word of God. The Word of God. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. And Hebrews 1, 3 says, By God's powerful Word He also upholds our universe. In other words, God's Word is the force which binds the strong nuclear force. And then there's Romans chapter 1, which says God reveals his glory through his word. Proverbs 3 says God grants life by his word. In Exodus 20, we learn that God reveals his moral will through his word. And then we have John chapter 1, which calls the Son of God the word made flesh. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God's word is even equated with God himself. And so after King David committed his grievous sins, the prophet Nathan confronted him. And Nathan said, you have despised the words of God. 
And then the very next verse says, you have despised God himself. So God's word is an extension of his very being. Now, for the last several months, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. And here we've seen that God's word not only declares, but also makes effective his plans for the future. That brings us into today's text, which again is Revelation chapter 10. Now, this chapter gives us another interlude in the judgment narrative. And the theme of this chapter is the word of God. This chapter teaches us that while God may not disclose every detail of his plans to us, we can rest assured that God will fulfill every word that he has uttered. I'll say that again. This is the theme of the chapter. While God may not disclose every detail of his plans to us, we can rest assured that he will fulfill every word that he has uttered. Now let us see this together. Beginning in verse 1, here's what the Apostle John writes to us. He writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Okay, we'll pause here. You notice the judgment narrative has been paused. Now we have a new drama unfolding. And as the drama begins, the Apostle John sees an angel coming down from heaven. He describes it as another mighty angel. You see, the book of Revelation has been filled with images of grand angelic beings. Here is just another one of them. This is one of God's angels, not the devil. We see that in his descent from heaven. This angel is coming down from heaven because he has a divine message to deliver. God is sending him to give the message. And as John continues on, he gives us a a physical description of this angel. We see he is wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face, John says, was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. So let's begin with the first description there. He is wrapped in a cloud. Now, in the book of Revelation, a cloud usually signifies divine judgment. So maybe you'll recall Revelation chapter 1. It says, He, Christ, is coming in the clouds. That means Christ is coming back, and He's coming in power and glory as a king and a judge. And then as we went through the seal judgments or the scroll judgments together, and then as we've gone through the first six trumpet judgments, we've seen storm clouds Form. And these storm clouds have dispensed God's judgments in the form of hail and fire and brimstone. Later on in Revelation 14, we'll see clouds again associated with divine judgment. And I believe that's what we have here as well. When the text says that the angel descended from heaven and he was wrapped in a cloud, it signifies to us that he is coming down with a message of divine judgment. But then there's another description here. He's also, he also has a rainbow over his head. Now, a rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy and grace. Recall the rainbow from Noah's day after the flood or of earlier in the book of Revelation when we saw that rainbow over the throne of God showing that he's a God of life and grace and mercy I believe that's what this signifies here as well. And so this angel coming down from heaven with a message from God, he has a message of both judgment and mercy. 
judgment and mercy, just as we have seen play out throughout this book. And then John gives some further descriptions. He says the angel also had a face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. Again, I think these are just describing the glory of this angel and his power. He is a divine representative. He has an authoritative message to deliver. And so he comes in great splendor. Now we come down to verse 2. We find out this angel has something in his hands. John writes, he had a, a little scroll open in his hand. Now that scroll has God's message written upon it. The angel has come down to read the contents of that scroll. And you see the scroll is open. That's because the message is ready to be declared. And now the angel touches down upon the earth. John writes, he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. Okay, so this is clearly an enormous angel. One foot is on dry ground, the other foot surrounded by water. But he takes this stance to, to, to uh, communicate that the message he has from God is for the entire inhabited world. All who dwell on the land, all who dwell in the sea, this message is for everyone. So the angel stands right in the midst of land and water. He holds up his scroll, and now the angel begins to herald the scroll's message. Again, this is God's message to the world. Beginning of verse 3, it says, He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. So now he is reading from the scroll, and the voice of the angel is like a lion's roar. Now, last summer, my kids and I took a trip to the Binder Park Zoo. We do this every year. But we don't always get to see the lions up close. In fact, this past summer was the first time we had ever gotten a really good look at these lions. And if you've been there uh, to Binder Park Zoo, you know there's a school bus pushed right up against the fence of the lion's habitat. You can climb up into the school bus. You can look through the windows and get a panoramic view of the whole habitat. Well, we climbed up into that school bus, we looked through the windows, and right there, right by the fence, was the male lion. And suddenly that male lion stood up and he let out this roar, and there is nothing that can describe that roar. I mean, it was like a jet engine, it, it was like a, a rocket blasting off, like, like a loud thunderclap. I don't know how to describe it. It was the most incredible sound I've ever heard from a living creature. When that lion let out its roar, I understood why they call the lion the king of the jungle. It was incredible. That roar communicated the lion's confidence. He knew he was in control. It was an intimidating sound. It was a sound meant to be heard by everyone in the zoo. He wanted all to know that he was the king of his habitat. Friends, this text tells us that when God sends down this angel to communicate his message upon that scroll, he is going to direct that angel to give the message like a lion roaring in the wild. You see, God is not weak and timid, and he does not want his messengers to be weak or timid either. When God speaks, he expects to be heard, and so he speaks through this angel with a loud, booming voice. 
And now look what happens next, second part of verse 3. It says, And when he, the angel, called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, commentators are divided on the meaning of this, but I take it to mean that the earth is responding to the divine message. So in other words, the angel has descended, he's touched down on the earth, he's delivering God's message to the world, and now the world, spoken of here as the seven thunders, is echoing back the message to God. God, God's voice goes out, he expects to be heard, and this time he is heard. It comes back in reply. The number seven here probably signifying the complete response of all the world to this message. But now look what happens in verse four. It says, and when the seven thunders sounded, I, John, was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now this is this is unusual. Because from the start of the book of Revelation to this point, John has been given all kinds of incredible visions. He's seen amazing things. He's heard amazing things. And at every step of the way, the Apostle John has been told to write it down. Over and over again, he's told, write it down. What you're seeing, what you're hearing, this is for the church right now. They need to know this information. But this time it's different. This time we have a a new scroll and a new angelic messenger. He reads the contents of the scroll, and and like a, a faithful scribe, John picks up his pen again. He begins to scribble it down, but this time the voice from heaven says, No, you may not record what you heard from that scroll, and neither may you record the echo that came back from the seven thunders. You cannot write any of this down. In other words, the details that you have just heard, John, they cannot be shared with the world at this time. It's for another time. Friends, John put his pen down, and to this day, we do not know what John heard in this vision. We do not know what he heard. Now, what are we to make of this fact? The fact that that God would want us to know that he has a scroll with information on it about the end of time, how he's going to wrap up all things and, and inaugurate his kingdom on the earth. He has a scroll with this information, and it's got all the minute details of his plan, the judgments, the salvation, it's all there. He wants us to know that it exists, but he does not want us to know the contents of that scroll. What are we to make of this? Well, friends, it means that God loves us very much. God loves us very much. Friends, because of his great love for us, God has chosen to reveal much about himself and his plans. So let's begin there. God has chosen to reveal much about himself and his plans. In fact, you have the record of God's revelation here in your lap today. This book is actually an anthology of 66 books, 
all together in one cover. This book has 1,189 chapters. It has nearly 800,000 words in it. God has given us a tremendous revelation already. Friends, what we have here in the Bible is a record of God's unerring, infallible, all-sufficient, all-sufficient word. Friends, everything that we need for life and godliness is contained right here. You will never encounter a situation in your life in which this written word will not give you the direction that you need. It's all right here. And this word includes incredible information. God gives us information about himself in the word that he has revealed. We learn in this book about God's love and his holiness and his justice. And we learn about his mercy and his grace. In this book, he's also revealed ourselves to us. We learn about, about our nature as we read his revelation. The scriptures tell us that, that we are image bearers of God, created to know and to love and to serve him. But this book also tells us that we've been estranged from God because of sin. Every one of us bears a, a sin nature. Of course, God didn't create us with sin natures, but we became sinful through our own volition the scriptures tell us the consequences of sin, that the wages of it is death, that is separation from God now and forever. But this revelation from God also tells us how we can be reconciled to him. It says that through repentance and faith, we can be reunited to God through Christ. This book tells us about the gift of his son, Jesus, who lived a life of perfect righteousness, who died as a substitutionary atonement for our sins, and who was raised the third day, showing his victory over death and hell. This book tells us that when we repent of our sins and trust in the provision that God has made for us in Christ, that we are born again. We have new life with God. We who have been estranged have been reconciled to him. See, the book that God has given us has all the information that we need. It tells us about himself. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us what's wrong and how to make it right. And this book even shows us God's plans for the future. We've been seeing this throughout our study of the book of Revelation. God has given us in broad outline all of his plans to, to bring his kingdom to the world. We see his plans to judge all that is evil, to establish all that is good. We see his plan to enthrone his son Jesus as king over all nations. My friends, what we have from God already is a precious revelation, an all-sufficient revelation for life and godliness. And yet, as we see here in today's text, God also, out of his love, has chosen not to reveal every single detail of his plans. He's chosen not to reveal every single detail. He lets us know that he has a plan, that his plan is all-inclusive, that it has every single detail accounted for, and yet he's chosen not to tell us exactly what those plans are. And why does God do this? Well, because he loves us and he wants to keep us humble. Now, the scriptures tell us that Knowledge puffs up. So it's good for us to know the outlines of God's plans, but for him to keep some things to himself. 
that allows us to stay humble, to make us aware of our own finitude. We are limited in our knowledge. As much as He has given us, we are still ignorant of many things. It's good for us to be humble. That keeps us dependent upon God. It keeps us deep in prayer. But then He also does this so we learn to live a life of faith. He calls us to simply trust in Him. God says to us through passages like Revelation 10, listen, I have a plan to bring this era of history to a close. I have a plan to put away sin, to establish righteousness. I have a plan to make my son the king. It's a good plan, but you need to trust me. I'm not going to give you a precise timeline. I'm not going to tell you the day that it's going to come. I'm not going to give you every last detail that you might want to know. I just want you to trust me. And every day, come back to me. Now, sometimes my children want to watch a program on television, and I have to say no. They say, Why can't we watch that show? The other kids in school watch that show. And I say, well, it's because there are some sinful things in that show. And so I don't want you to see it. And then they say, well, what kinds of sinful things are in that show? And I reply, not things for you to know. The time will come when you need to learn about those kinds of sins. But now is not the time. For now, I just need you to trust me. I'm your dad. I love you, I want to raise you in godliness, and I want you to trust me on this. Well, this is what God does with us, too. God comes to us and he says, there are things in life that you may want to know, but I am not going to share the details with you right now. This is not the time for you to know. So instead, I'm just calling you to trust me. Trust that my plan is good. Trust that I'm doing the right thing. Believe in me. That's why God does this. And I say again, it is out of his love. Now we come to verses 5 through 7 of our text. John writes, verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. Here's the the hand holding the scroll, God's message. He holds it up to God. Verse 6, And then he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay. Verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So after this angel has delivered the divine message and the echo has come back to him, the angel now raises that scroll up to heaven and he makes a vow. A vow in the name of God and in the presence of all heaven and all earth and with a voice that all could hear and he declares that the long wait for the kingdom of God has come to an end. There will be no more delay. 
He says that with the blast of that seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would finally be fulfilled. I take the mystery of God here to refer to the contents of the scroll that he's just read. It's a mystery because we don't know what's on it. He says at the blast of that seventh trumpet, and there will be no more delay before that trumpet is blasted. He says with the blast of that trumpet, the mystery will be fulfilled He says, all will see with their own eyes. They will hear with their own ears what is on that scroll as the decrees contained therein are carried out. And then he adds this detail, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. See, friends, as we look at our Old Testament scriptures, we do find many prophecies about this coming kingdom. Many prophecies about the day of the Lord, which is associated with the kingdom. We do learn in broad outline form what God's plans are for the inauguration of that kingdom on earth. During the lifetime of Jesus and his apostles, further details were given to us, but still there are details that we are not privy to. We see that through this little scroll in Revelation 10, some details we're just not privy to. But friends, one day it will all be made known. As God enacts the decrees contained on the scroll, all heaven and earth will see what God's plans were. Friends, there is a day coming when that mystery will be over, when the kingdoms of this world will come to an end, just as God has decreed they shall, and then His kingdom will take their place. Then all the hidden details will be made known, Friends, when that day finally comes, we will look back and we will praise God together for His love and His wisdom and His justice and His grace as we see it was a perfect plan. And then, friends, when that day comes, all that we are living through now with its pain and its sufferings and its death All of this will become a distant memory as the kingdom of God moves from time into eternity and we are forever in the presence of God in everlasting joy. It is coming and we will see it. But in the meantime, we must live by faith. We must fulfill the calling that God has given to us in the here and now. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. John writes, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. Verse 9, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Verse 10, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, in the ancient world, to eat something is a metaphor for fully understanding a matter. Fully understanding a matter. In fact, we we have similar idioms in in our English language. Sometimes, if, if you hear a difficult truth from somebody, you might reply, That's a hard pill to swallow. Or you might say to them, I'm going to have to let that digest for a little while. 
It's, it's the same concept there. To, to eat something, to, to digest or to swallow, it means that you have come to a full understanding of the thing. You've been able to, to grasp its, its meaning, its significance. You have, you have made application of it to yourself. You understand its ramifications. That's what it means to, to eat something. And here in Revelation 10, the voice from heaven says to John the Apostle, I want you to take the scroll which has the contents of my decrees, and I want you to chew it and swallow it. But it comes with a warning. It'll be sweet to your mouth, but bitter to your stomach. Well, John then takes the scroll, and he literally fulfills the instruction. He takes it, he places it in his mouth, and as the scroll rests on his tongue, it is as sweet as honey. But then he swallows the scroll, and inside of his stomach, it turns bitter as gall. You see, friends, that scroll contained all the minute details of God's plans for the end of the age. That plan includes all of the, the wonderful details about God's triumph over sin and Satan and death and hell, but it also includes the bitter details of God's final judgments which will come on the world of unbelief. And so it was a scroll with both good news and bad news, and so that's why it has this twofold effect upon John. As he puts the scroll into his mouth, he tastes the triumph of God in the world, and it is delightful to him. But then as he swallows it, he is ingesting the path through which God's triumph will come, the path of judgment upon the world of unbelief, and those are bitter words to digest. See, friends, God has a plan to bring this age to a close. His words will bring that plan to its conclusion. For those who have fled to God through Christ in repentance and faith, they will find the end to be sweet as honey. For those who reject the words of God, the end will be everlasting misery, bitter as gall for them. And this is what John, the apostle, was experiencing, the twofold effect of God's words being executed at the end of the age. Friends, what should we do in light of this reality? Well, in light of all this, we must broadcast God's word to as many people as we can, that as many as possible could taste it as honey and not as bitterness. And this takes us to the final verse of the chapter, verse 11. John writes, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So John has heard the message of the scroll. John has now eaten the message of the scroll. And now John has been commissioned to go and to preach to all people and about all people. Preach the message, John, he is told. Friends, while none of us may be apostles or prophets, we do all have a commission of our own. We are commissioned to preach the gospel to every creature. That means preaching the reality of God to everyone who will listen, telling the world He is there, telling the world what He is like. It means preaching the fallen condition of mankind that, yes, we bear God's image, have great dignity, but we've also got this sin principle within us. 
And it alienates us from God and it causes us to do terrible things. And if we don't resolve that sin principle, it will send us on a trajectory toward death and hell forever. And it means preaching about the gift of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. About the perfect life that He lived on our behalf. About His all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. About His resurrection from the grave showing His victory over death and hell. Friends, it is our job today in this age to preach the bitter and the sweet that as many as possible might turn to God in repentance and faith, being reconciled to Him, becoming a part of the kingdom to come. It's our job to offer the invitation found in Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him. He will abundantly pardon and the offer in Isaiah 1.18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And the promise of John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, in light of the sweetness of triumph and of the bitterness of the misery of rejecting God, we must preach to all people that they might have the opportunity to enjoy the sweet and not taste the bitter. Friends, the kingdom of God is coming. It will come by means of God's word, which is the most powerful force in the universe. Friend, what are you doing to be ready for that kingdom? Who are you going to talk to this week that they might get ready to? Well, let's pray together now as we close. Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the reminder of the power, the efficacy of your word. And Lord, though we don't know every detail about how you will bring your kingdom to the earth, we do know that you have a plan. So help us, Lord, to trust in you. Help us to maintain humble dependence upon you. And help us, Lord, to, to do the, the, the necessary thing if we've not done so yet, that we would see ourselves as you see us, the good and the bad, that we would repent of sin, that we would trust in the provision you have made for us through Christ, that we might be born again, reconciled to you, and given our citizenship in that coming kingdom. And Lord, please give us the courage to speak to others that they might have the opportunity to respond in this way also. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.